Good morning, Old Norse. How's everybody doing today? Oh, it's a beautiful day, beautiful time to gather around the most important thing, and that is around the Word of God, to have our hearts transformed by it. So I invite you to find your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. The title of our time today is going to be Living and Finishing Well. And as I thought about that even just sitting there, I was thinking we really could rephrase this sermon title to just being Living as a Christian. Because I really think the reality is that we don't have phases of life as Christians, rather we have opportunities for lifelong obedience to Christ. And so I want that to kind of be our framework as we begin our time today. Wherever you may find yourself in the phase of life, you have the same goal no matter where you might find yourself. And that is to live obedient to Christ's call upon you. So I want to tell you a little bit about my own life. I love talking about myself. Don't you judge me, but that's okay. I recently purchased a motorcycle. I ride that motorcycle. I didn't just purchase it, I also ride it. And I also just recently turned 44. I hear giggles, I hear laughter. It's okay to laugh out loud. I know what you're thinking. I know what you, in your judgmental ways, are thinking about me. You're thinking, Dan is having a midlife crisis. Well... I don't think that's the case, but certainly might look like that. Now, those two things individually are fine, right? If I were to buy a motorcycle, it's no problem. If I turn 44, that's no problem. But when you combine those two, we naturally assume that someone is trying to figure things out in their life. Maybe I am. I don't know. But I do know that there's something about a certain point in life, a certain age in life, where you begin to rethink the decisions that you make. You begin to rethink everything that has brought you to the point that you find yourself in. Uh, And I think that's natural as we age. I really do. I think it's a a thing that naturally occurs as we kind of look at the grand scope of things of our life, the trajectory that has brought us to where we are, and we wonder, is it all worth it? Have we lived well? Have we done the right things? Am I making a difference for the people that I care about the most? Am I going to leave a mark for more than just a temporary existence on this earth. We have big questions, big concerns. And as a Christian, our primary concern is, are we living in such a way that our life counts for so much more than ourselves, but counts for Jesus Christ? Are we living for his kingdom, first and foremost? And after we pass on, will people see our name and think of Jesus rather than us? That's our goal, really, and that's our topic for today, is how do we live and how do we finish well as Christians? It's a gigantic question, and it's the first question that I want us to begin to wrestle with, is how do we as Christians live well? Some of you remember years ago there was a movie with Billy Crystal called City Slickers. You remember that movie? where Billy and a few of his friends decided to go out west and live as cowboys for a little bit just to experience life. And and I think even in context, they were in the midst of a midlife crisis age for them as well. And so they went out west to try to live as cowboys to figure things out. And as Billy thought about what life was all about, you remember that he was given a piece of advice. And he asked, he said, what do I know? How do I know if I'm living well? And the gentleman next to him said, well, you have to keep the main thing the main thing. 
And that's really the reality for us as Christians as we live, is that we have to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, if the main thing is misdefined, though, then that's where we run into tremendous issues. And that's kind of where we as Christians find ourselves in this culture in which we live. We live in a culture that has defined the main thing as a certain way of living, a certain perspective, a certain desire, a certain trajectory in our life. And so we tend to, as Christians, to buy into that. And friends, that is an over, oversold and underperforming vision of life. And so in light of that, the question we have to ask ourselves as we stand face to face with how culture says we should live, as we stand face to face with the visions and dreams of culture in front of us, the question we have to ask as Christians is this. Is Jesus Christ worthy enough to sacrifice what culture says is true for what he says is true? Is Christ worthy enough to lay down that which we think we should pursue, be pursuing for that which we know we should be pursuing? It's a gigantic question, and for many of us, the answer sadly is a resounding maybe. We stand with a foot in both worlds, trying to follow both Christ and trying to follow the desires of this world, and So therefore, we have great dissonance in our hearts. And so as Christians, as we think about what it means to live well, we cannot try to determine what that means on our own, and we cannot try to determine what it means to live well by looking at culture. We have to look at what God says. And so in Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26, we see the Apostle Paul addressing a church there on what it means to live well. Read with me here in verse 19 of chapter 1 in the book of Philippians. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ because of my coming to you again. So Paul, as he gives a definition of what it means to live well as a Christian... It's coined in this phrase that he has said here in Philippians chapter 1 that we all know. To live is Christ. It's a tremendously popular verse. It's it's a tremendously and rightfully so quoted verse about the purposes of life. But in order to understand what it indeed means to live is Christ, we have to back up a bit and look at verse 20. You'll notice that verse 21, when he says to live is Christ, it actually begins with the word for. For to me to live is Christ. And that word for is actually referencing back to what he said previously in verse 20. In verse 20, he says that Christ may be honored in my body. So there, we're beginning to unpack a bit of literally what it means to live is Christ. The first thing which it means to live is Christ is that I physically live a Christ that live a life that honors Christ. I physically am living a life that honors Christ. For many of us, following Christ is a reserved spiritual endeavor. 
There's distinct dividing line between the affections of our heart and the behavior of our bodies in regards to following Christ. And we don't oftentimes think that how we follow Christ has tremendous physical implications for how we live life. And friends, I want to tell you today that to follow Christ means that you physically follow Christ. It means that things are dramatically different. There are distinctive physical realities for you as a Christian that are different from the realities of those who are not Christians. The use of your time, the use and purposes of our resources, our physical obedience regarding God's call upon us in purity, all of our physical interactions in life and all of our physical responses to Christ should be filtered through the question, the phrase that Paul utters here. Am I physically honoring Christ in my body? And this is a theme that Paul develops elsewhere in scripture because he knows that all of our natural tendency is to think that because we are redeemed by the work of Christ spiritually, then what we do physically doesn't necessarily matter. Almost as if it's a second place obedience. And friends, I want to tell you that what you do physically for Christ reflects what Christ has done in you spiritually. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul says, For you were bought with a price, so therefore glorify God. Anyone want to guess what that last phrase is? In your body. Because of the spiritual price that was paid for you, the physical shedding of Christ's blood results in a physical way of living that honors him for us as Christians. And then Paul also develops this further in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, when he looks at those Corinthians and he says to them and says to us today, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do how much to the glory of God? All to the glory of God. There is a tremendous physical reality to following Christ. Your life, my life, should be distinctly different because we are now driven by and to a different goal than we were before we were Christians. Christ's call upon us has tremendous physical results. Now remember, we don't live a certain way to become Christians. We live a certain way because we are Christians. Why do we go to church? Because we are Christians. Why do we give of our resources? Because we are Christians. Why do we give to others? Because we are Christians. Why do we desire to serve in Christ's name? Because we are Christians. So the first thing to live well means that you are honoring Christ in your body. Secondly, I want you to notice with me here in in Philippians chapter 1. That Paul says, for him to live is Christ and die is gain. And he goes on in verse 22 and says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. To live well as a Christian, in accordance to Paul's definition here, is that our life is filled with fruitful labor for Christ. And if we know what fruitful labor looks like, then we can maybe begin to put some things in place in our life that reflect that. So in verse 25, looking further down... Paul describes what that fruitful labor is. Convinced of this in verse 25, he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Fruitful labor as a Christian means that we live our lives to help others progress in their faith in Christ. 
Why is it that you still have breath in your lungs this morning? Christ has given you that so that you might indeed be faithful in helping those in your realm and your sphere of influence progress in their knowledge and appreciation of the gospel. Our goal is to aid in others' growth, in their maturing, in their understanding of the gospel. And this takes place in every moment that we may find ourselves in. There is no place in our lives that is outside of the scope of that purpose. Now, it might have different looks during the day, but that is our purpose. And so I want to break down that work a little bit so that we can understand it and apply it a little bit better into our life. But as we are fruitful, it kind of takes its place in three different scenarios. Three different ways of being fruitful in our labor for Christ. Number one, through gospel conversations. We have gospel conversations with ourselves as we refresh the gospel in our own heart. I am redeemed by the grace of Christ, not my own works. It is Christ's work that has completely saved me, has forgiven me all my sins, restored my relationship with God. We preach that to ourselves, but we also preach that to other people. The world needs to know that there is healing available. The world needs to know that there is restoration available between them and God, that God in the beautiful way that he has, has pursued broken humanity and brought healing. And so our mouths must be filled with gospel conversations. Secondly, we must be filled with gospel convictions. First for ourselves and for others, as we begin to teach ourselves what it looks like to live in obedience to the truth of Christ, the truth of scripture, and then we help those who follow Christ to live the same. Striving to help one another mature in obedience and to worship the magnificent Savior. And then gospel celebration. Living out the joy of a remade and forgiven heart. I want you to notice here in verse 26 of Philippians 1. I'm sorry, verse 25. After Paul says, for your progress he's working, notice that there's a word there, joy. As Paul works for the Philippians... For their growth, the result will be joy. Christian, the work of Christ within us is not some drab reality. The work of Christ within us is a magnificent transformation that occurs. And so therefore, our response should be one of tremendous joy and celebration. And so gospel celebration, as you are in the workplace, as you are in your family, your life should be one of celebration for the fact that your soul has been healed. Our lives physically should look different because our soul has been healed. There should be joy and celebration in our midst. To live is Christ is living well. And living well is a physical magnifying of Christ and fruitful labor for the advancement of the gospel in your own heart and in the lives of others. I wonder, if that is the definition of living well as a Christian, are you and am I living well? Well, living well is just part of the equation for our time today. And so we need to talk about the next step of what it means to live as a Christian, and that is the idea of finishing well. Namely, what am I to do with the later years of my life, should God grant them to me? So let's spend a little bit of time here as we 
come around third base in our time together and speaking about what the Bible says about our later years versus what maybe culture has taught us about our later years. In America today, there is roughly $8.8 trillion invested in personal and corporate pension plans. $8.8 trillion, 8.6 of which is mine. The intent behind these investments, you all know, is is we invest in these things with the hopes that there will be enough money there to carry us through the years when we are no longer earning income as we actively do now in our work years. But I think we can all agree that that's a lot of money. And that money's all there with the hopes that it will sustain us into, allow us to enter into, and carry us through retirement. I like the idea of retirement a lot. I do. And some of you guys that are my age are smiling because you like it as well. The thought that I can save and work and plan and reach a point to where I am no longer told what I have to do, but I get to choose what I'm going to do, I like that idea a lot. And as a Christian, though, one of the disciplines of our faith is when we like something a lot, we need to pour it through scripture to see if it is something that we should indeed like a lot. (laughs) And with retirement, I'm not certain that it is a biblical concept. There's a reality here that as we look into scripture, we see that retirement is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible, but is mostly a Western concept that was developed in the late 19th century when the economy was improving and also the physical toll on the workers reached a certain point where there needed to be a time when people stopped physically working. The closest that we can find in scripture regarding retirement is Numbers 8.25, when there's command given for the priests that at the age of 50, uh uh-huh, 50, that's a great young age for retirement, at the age of 50, the priests should change their duties no longer working inside the the temple, but working on the outskirts, helping to secure the work of the temple. Notice there, there's a phrase, not ending their duties, changing. So while retirement isn't a biblical concept, it's a cultural concept, that doesn't mean it's wrong or evil. Those of you who are retired in our midst, I do not want you to feel guilty about the fact that you are retired. Our hope is that we think biblically about the time that God has allowed us to have now. Because there's tremendous danger in settling into a routine of ease and golf and naps and dinners at 4 p.m. on endless repeat. For a little help in understanding that danger of falling prey to such thinking, we need to turn to one of the top philosophers in human history, the doctor himself, Dr. Seuss. Some of you know the work that he wrote called, Oh, the Places You'll Go, a book about about the movements of life, and as he reflects and teaches us all about the movements of life, he pauses to reflect on the most dangerous thing or place that can happen to a person. He calls it the waiting place. And here are his words of wisdom. For people just waiting, waiting for a train to go, or a bus to come, or a plane to go, or the mail to come, or the rain to go, or the phone to ring, or the snow to snow, or waiting around for yes or no, or waiting for their hair to grow, 
Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Everyone is just waiting. Waiting for the fish to bite, or waiting for the wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for Friday night, or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig of curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. Friends, as you enter into our later years, those are not the years to wait. Those are the years that God has given you to be active for his kingdom. Let us as Christian men and women begin to think differently. Our later years may mean that you change careers, that you have the end of a career. It might mean that you no longer need to clock in and clock out. But it doesn't mean that you are in the waiting place. So Christian brother or sister, let us no longer think with a Western retirement mindset, but with a mindset towards finishing well. And so let's look again at the Apostle Paul, because he seems to give us some good insight on the Christian life, on how to live and finish well. And this time, I want you to turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, Paul is writing to a young pastor named Timothy at the church at Ephesus, and he's helping Timothy realize that Paul is not always going to be around. In this particular passage here at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is recognizing that the end of his days are near, that he is in the process of finishing the life that God has given him. And so he reflects on what it means to finish well, beginning in verse 6. Let's read that together. Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And now verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. In verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So as Paul reflects on his life and the death that awaits him soon, he knows three things about his life that allow him to finish well. And he also noticed that he mentions one who doesn't finish well. And sometimes we gloss over this individual named Demas because we focus on what Paul says about finishing well in his own life. But notice that Demas did not finish well. He deserted Paul. And why did he desert Paul? Well, Paul tells us that Demas was in love with the present world. And so as we read that and connect 2 plus 2 equaling 4, we can kind of begin to see this reality that Paul desires us to see. That if you are gripped with worldly concerns and affections, then you will not, cannot finish well for Christ. Same is true for living, by the way. If you are gripped with worldly affections and concerns, if that's how you define the process of living, well, then you will not live well for Christ. And so what are the points that Paul puts in place for us to reflect upon with regards to finishing well for Christ? In these next few segments, I want us to go through and look at how maybe our retirement mindset, the Western mindset that we've maybe adopted or thought about, is in conflict with what Paul says here. First, in verse 7, he says that he has fought the good fight to the end. What was it that Paul was fighting for? I don't think that Paul was a boxer. I don't think that there was anything like that. But he was fighting for something. He was fighting against false teaching that was prevalent of the day. 
He was fighting against the sinful lore of his own heart, and he was fighting for the glory of God in the remaining years that God has given him. Now, our Western retirement mindset tells us that as we enter into our final few years, that it's now someone else's fight. We've done it. I've put my time in. It's someone else's weight to carry now. It's someone else's time to engage the battle. Paul would tell you, your fight isn't over. Paul would tell you, the gospel must be taught. Paul would tell you, the errors of our culture must be exposed. Paul would tell you that personal holiness must be constantly pursued. And that's what it means to finish well. Practically, what that means for us as a church is that those of us who are in the final few years of our life that God has granted us, we should use those years to study. We should use those years to teach. We should use those years to help the next generation know and understand the beauty of Jesus Christ. Finishing well. Notice next in verse 7 that Paul says that he ran to the end. He finished the race. The comparison of his life and gospel work of that of a race is really helpful and poignant. As you run a race, a marathon or a half marathon or any sort of distance, you kind of understand that as you run and progress in the race, there's a certain point that it gets harder. I have a friend who has run multiple, multiple, multiple marathons. And one of his marathons a few years ago, he and I were talking afterwards and I was like, so how was the race? And he's like, oh, it was great. He said, except at mile 22, I saw this guy's front yard and all I could think about was, I just want to go lay in his grass. The reality is that as we run, it's hard to keep running physically. And the same thing is true for us in our life. There's a certain point where in our retirement mindset, we may say, hey, I've done it. Woo. I can kind of coast out now. It's my time. It's me time. Paul says to us as Christians, this isn't your time. This is God's time. And because it's God's time, run it out to the end. Finish well. In the time that we all have, in the circles of relationships that God has placed us, there are conversions and conversations to be had. We are to be active in proclaiming the gospel until the day that the breath that it takes to proclaim the gospel is taken from us. That's what it means to finish well. That's what it means to run to the end. My son runs cross country. And he's now reached the point where he can leave me far, far behind as we run. And I'm okay with that. And as he runs, his cross-country coach tells him, Sam, when you finish running a race, you should not be able to run anymore. (laughs) You should give everything you have so that when you're done, you simply cannot go anymore. And that's the reality of finishing well, and that's the image that Paul wants us to have. And then lastly, notice that Paul says that he was faithful. He kept the faith to the end. Paul was not celebrating Paul. He wasn't patting himself on the back here and saying, man, I did a great job, look at me. No, Paul was saying Christ was faithful in and through him to the very end. He's celebrating the work of Christ, the investment of Christ in Paul to the very end. 
our retirement mindset tells us that these few years that we have left are years that we can enjoy our own investments, enjoy the fruit of our labors. Finishing well tells us that I will spend the years that I have remaining investing in the kingdom of God, the things that do not fade away. And practically speaking, that means that you invest in the next generation. You mentor, you train, you guide, you disciple those who are coming behind. Whatever admonitions Paul might have addressed to aging Christians, recommending relaxation and taking things easy would not have been among them. Finish well. Now, by God's grace, many of us in this room have images of men and women who have gone before us and have finished well. Some of you may be thinking of them even now. Who are they? Who are the men and women who finished, who ran hard to the end, who set the course in front of you, who illustrated what it meant to be devoted to Christ until the Lord has called them home? Think about them. And as Paul says, imitate them as they imitated Christ, as they followed Christ. In conclusion today, I want to talk to you about one who I remember, who I think about. Some of you are familiar with the name George Whitfield. George Whitfield was an evangelist in the 18th century in both England and in the American colonies, and he was one of the evangelists who was speaking during the Great Awakening. He also has wonderful white curly hair wig there. Whitfield was a man who was known for the pace of his ministry. And I want us to share with you a bit of how this man ministered for the gospel. It was said of Whitfield that he spoke, preached, taught, lectured 60 hours a week. Now that's not just preparing or trapping, that's 60 hours a week of speaking for the kingdom. Now consider that as he traveled, that required substantial effort as well. The scope of his preaching was unreal as well. He often spoke to crowds of 8,000 to to 20,000 people. He spoke in Boston for a month once. And because there was no church big enough to house the 8,000 people who desired to hear him, he went outside for the month and spoke to them all. And what was remarkable remarkable about that number of 8,000 people that averaged seeing him on a day-to-day was that the population of Boston was 8,000. It's estimated that 80% of the population of the American colonies heard Whitfield preach at some point. 80%. And the pace of ministry was hard on Whitfield. And people were concerned about him as he worked so hard and so tirelessly for the kingdom and for the gospel. And his phrase to them was, I'd rather wear out than rust out. J.C. Ryle, another wonderful theologian and evangelist, said of Whitfield, he was eminently a man of one thing and always about his master's business. If you followed him around, you would see that from Sunday mornings to Saturday nights, from the 1st of January to the 31st of December, he was incessantly preaching Christ and going about the world and treating men to repent and come to Christ and be saved. In the months of August and September of 1770, Whitfield was consistently ill, could not seem to kick what he thought was asthma, but that didn't stop him. He kept preaching, kept traveling. He was about to preach one day, and as he went up to the pulpit, someone grabbed him by the arm and said, you're better fit for bed than preaching. 
and he went up and preached anyways and then traveled 30 miles to the next destination. When he reached the next destination, he wanted to grab a few hours of sleep before he had to preach in the morning, and so he went to bed. But the crowds knew that Whitfield had arrived and wouldn't let him go to bed. And so they knocked on the door and said, we want to hear you preach. And Whitfield got up, stood at the top of the stairs, held a candle, and preached. And he preached until the candle went out, and then he went to bed. And that was the last time Whitfield went to bed because that night he entered into heaven as the Lord called him home. And that candle burning out signaled so much more, signified so much more than just the end of a sermon. It signified the end of a life that was lived well. And it's a challenge for us all that perhaps our mindset about our life is that it is our life. When in reality, this is God's time that he has given to us that we might indeed live and finish well for him. That we might leave a mark, not for our kingdom, but for the kingdom of God that will reign, that will go on for all eternity. And so may we never, ever, ever settle into the waiting place, but may our refrain be that of Paul and all who have gone before us. May we set the example of faithful service to the glorious king. Is he worthy of that? He is. There is no greater purpose for us to live to than that. And as we close, one final verse. Just listen to this verse from Paul. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, as Paul reflects on his days, may this be our verse that reflects on our days and gives us purpose for tomorrow. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Old North, may that be our prayer. Lord, thank you for this, these challenging words, these words that remind us of the purpose of our days. And so, Lord, I want to ask that you would fill our hearts with challenge, that you would fill our hearts with introspection and honest look at how we spend our time. And I would ask, Lord, that you would cause us to be corrected where we need to be corrected, that you will encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and, Lord, that you will give us boldness to believe that your way is the better way. And so, Father, I ask for us as a body here at Old North, and I ask for us as a church worldwide, Lord, that we would exemplify you as the worthy king. That the moments of our life would count for you and not for us. And may you receive the glory as we live in such a way. In your name we pray. Amen.
Good morning, Old North. I invite you to find your copy of the Word of God and turn to the letter of Philippians. We'll spend a little bit of time there. We'll also spend some time in First Timothy or Second Timothy, addressing a topic that I think all of us are concerned about: the idea of how do I live and finish well for my king. So recently, I purchased a motorcycle. Yep, there she is. Uh Uh-huh. She's a beautiful Royal Enfield. I named her Jenny because I will never buy a boat. And if you know Forrest Gump, you know that he named his boat Jenny. So that's my Jenny. And um, and that's a, a, a wonderful gift that I bought. Love it. Love to ride it. I also turned 44. Why are you laughing, Jason? Yeah. Now, those two things independent of each other are okay. Totally okay for a man to buy a motorcycle. Totally okay to turn 44 at some point. However, when those two things go together, what are you all thinking? Midlife crisis. Judgmental crowd. Let me tell you how I know I'm not having a judgment or a, uh, a midlife crisis. I didn't buy a Harley. <laughs> no, I think the reality is that as we age in life, we reach certain benchmarks or certain phases where we kind of look back and, and assess, right? We look back and determine whether we are living for the right things, for the right ends. We consistently kind of check in on ourselves, or so we should. And it's an okay process to enter into. I think the crisis comes when we look at those realities, those benchmarks, those moments, and realize that we have been living for and towards the wrong things. And so, no, I'm not having a midlife crisis. Because 23 years ago, the Lord fixed my gaze upon him, and he has not let me turn my head elsewhere, no matter how many times I've tried. And so our prayer for us today, as we talk about what it means to live life as a Christian, we talk about two major chunks of life, living well and then ultimately finishing well, because no one in this room wants to get to a point in our life where we look back over time and say, oh, I've missed it. I've missed it. Some of you are familiar with a British journalist by the name of Malcolm Mugridge. Malcolm wrote an autobiography, and the title of it was Chronicles of, a waste, of Wasted Time. No one wants to look back over our life and write that as the title of our life. And so the question that we are asking today is, how do I live well? It doesn't matter how old you are today in this congregation, how, what stage of life you find yourself in. This question is a gigantic question that we should indeed wrestle with. And in fact, at the underbedding of this question, on the foundational level of this question is, how do you live well as a Christian, is the reality that many of us look at the life of a Christian, look at the commands of what it means to be a Christian, and look at the offerings of this world, and we often hold those two things up side by side, and we choose that which is most attractive to us. So the question that I ask myself and I ask all of us today is this, in holding the two versions of life, life up in front of you, do you value the call of Christ upon you 
to such a point that you're willing to let go of what culture tells you you should be following? Is he worthy enough for you to let go of all that you've been told in order for that which you have been shown to be true? Is he worthy of ultimate sacrifice? And so for us to begin to work through the answers to that question, we cannot look into ourselves because we consistently mislead ourselves. We need to look to scripture. So Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, is addressing the purpose of his life and how he defines living well. Because perhaps maybe you're at a point in your life where you want to define what it means to live well as a Christian. Well, my hope for us today is that we give you something to bite into. First, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but, with, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better." But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So as Paul defines living well, he defines it with a phrase that many of us know. He defines it by simply saying, for me to live is Christ. And so at the very first foundational point, to live well means that you live by the phrase, to live is Christ. But what does that really mean? It's not as if you walk around saying, I'm living is Christ. That's not at all what that looks like, but it does play itself out in practical levels. And so for us to understand this a bit clearer, we have to look back at the text and see why it is that Paul said what he said in verse 21. And the way in which we discern that is look at verse 20. In verse 20, as Paul begins to think about and wrestle what his life is going to look like as he is on this earth, in verse 20 he says, I always hope that Christ will be honored in my Body, And that's why he then said, for me to live is Christ. And so one of the first things we must understand that living well looks like for a Christian is that I physically live a life that honors Christ. That I physically live a life that honors Christ. Now for many of us, the reason I even have to say this point to myself and to all of us is that we think that following Christ is mostly a spiritual endeavor or maybe entirely a spiritual endeavor. That we've been redeemed by Christ, therefore we can live however we choose. Our body is ours to live. Friends, there is a distinctive physical way to live as a Christian. There is a distinctive way in which you live that lives and reflects the call of Christ upon you. There's a distinctive way in which we use our time, the way in which we use the resources God has given us, the way in which we live in obedience to Christ's call upon us regarding purity. There is a distinct physicality to following Jesus Christ. 
and the filter by which we should pour all of our actions through to determine whether these are things that we should physically be doing or not is the same thought that Paul gives us here in verse 20. Is the way in which I'm living my physical life honoring to Christ? It's a great filter by which you can filter through the way in which you do and do not live. Now, why should we live in such a physical obedience to Jesus Christ? Well, Paul clarifies this for us throughout the other letters of the New Testament that he has written because he understands the same thing that we know in our own heart right now. Our tendency is to negate the idea that we need to live a certain way because of the grace of Christ. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul says, here's why you live differently. For you were bought with a price. And now we know what that price was. That was the work of Christ upon the cross that redeemed us entirely. It redeemed us from the penalty of sin, but also redeemed us from a life that is defined by sinful activities. You were bought with a price, and so, here's the so then, so glorify God in your body. And then in 1 Corinthians 10.31, because the Corinthians were much different than us, they were slow to get things. He says again, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So he even gets specific. There is no activity, large or small, that is to be lived outside of the call of Christ, the ownership of Christ upon you. So friends, we live differently physically for Christ because we have been reborn by Christ. Do the activities of your life reflect and honor Christ? So, to live as Christ means that I physically live a life that honors Christ. Secondly, to live as Christ means that our life is filled with fruitful labor for Christ. If you look here in your text, Paul begins to describe and, and play out a bit of what this means for the Philippians and for himself in verse 22. As he goes on past the idea of living is Christ and dying is gain, he says, For, I, for if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Now, he's not speaking about good work as far as a good job, a good career. He's talking about the purpose statement of why he walks on this earth. And that's found even clarifying even more in verse 25. And he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Why is it that we live on this earth as Christ? Why did he give you breath today? So that you and I might live in such a way that we help others around us progress in their faith in Christ. The purpose of our days, the fruitful labor for Christ, means that we intentionally are aware of other people's spiritual progress and how we might engage them and help them grow. Now that takes and looks like different phases in different areas of life, but that's the concept that we must live with. So as God has you at a specific workplace, your purpose is there to help others progress in their faith. Sometimes even towards Christ at all, helping them be aware of a Savior. Sometimes it's helping them grow. And so in order for us to help help you think or help us all think a little bit more strategically about how we do indeed help others progress, I thought three little points might be helpful. Number one, it might look like gospel conversations. In your workplace, in your family, to yourself, 
It might look like gospel conversations where we begin to clarify what the gospel really is. The reality that man is sinful. The reality that man in his own sin is experiencing the wrath from God. The reality that man is apart from our creator and cannot earn our way into his favor. Now that's something we have to speak to ourselves because our tendency is to try to earn that. And it's something that we must speak to our friends and our families, our co-workers. And so perhaps... Gospel conversations is what this looks like in your life right now. Or gospel convictions. The reality where we begin to help one another understand the implications of following Jesus Christ. What do I need to learn next sort of idea? Where do I go to learn these sorts of things? Perhaps you are in a work relationship or a family relationship where now your role is to help someone understand the Bible better. And instill in them gospel convictions. And Or maybe you're at a point of gospel celebration, where now you celebrate the completed work of Christ with another, where you celebrate the victory of Christ upon the cross, and then ultimately where you live in a joyous state as you anticipate the reality that there will be a day when Christ returns and calls us home. And I want you to notice here in Philippians chapter 1, that as Paul talks about the progress of the Philippians, He says, I want to work and continue with you for your progress and also for the joy of your faith. Are you joyous about the work of Christ? We should be. There should be a joy within us that wells up out of us because of what Christ has done in us. Our life as Christians should be distinctively different physically, but it should be distinctively different in the purpose and the way in which we engage one another. And so to live is Christ is living well, and living well is physically magnifying Christ and working for the fruitful labor of the gospel. And I wonder if that is the definition of living well, I wonder if that is how you can define your life. Are your days living in physical obedience to the call of Christ, and are your days being fruitful in your labor for the gospel? Well, I think I've made you feel intentionally guilty enough now. I think we can maybe be done, but we won't be. We're going to keep going a bit and speak about the next phase of our life. For all of us, we live, our desire is to live well. But I think a lot of us find ourselves in a space now where we desire to finish out the life that God has given us well. We desire to enter into a reality where we are doing the right things as God has given us a few remaining years left. I want to talk to you a little bit about retirement. Do you know that in America right now, there is $8.8 trillion in pension plans? Now, 8.6 of it is Pastor Nick's, but the point two <laughs> is the rest of ours. $8.8 trillion. Now, that's old saying, Billy Graham said, you give me five minutes with your checkbook and I, tell, I can tell you where your heart is. I think this is true in regards to thinking about even this number. $8.8 trillion in a pension fund. What does that tell us about the vision for us as humans, and specifically as Americans? Well, we put that money into those accounts in hopes that we will finally reach a point where we can leave that which we are doing currently and enter into that which we want to do. Enter into a phase of retirement. I love the idea of retirement, by the way. 
love it. I think it's great. And all of you who are my age are going, yeah, it sounds great. I like the idea of saving, of planning, of looking ahead to the day when I can finally just do what it is that I want to do as opposed to what I'm told to do. I like the idea of every day being Saturday. That's what I hear it's like. I like the idea of, of golf. I like the idea of naps. I like the idea of 4 p.m. dinners. All those things are attractive to me. But I'm not exactly certain that is what God is calling us to towards the end of our life. Simply stated, retirement is not a biblical concept. It is not in scripture anywhere. The closest that you can find it in is Numbers chapter 8 verse 25 when the priests are told that at the age of 50, that's a great retirement age, At the age of 50, they are to change their duties. Not stop working, but change that which they do to a less physical task. That's the closest we get. So that being said, I'm not here to make those of you who are retired feel guilty about this space of life that you have found yourself in. It's not wrong to retire. There are points and times in our careers where we stop those things and enter into a different phase, but I am challenging us all to understand that as we desire to live well for Christ, then we should desire to finish well for Christ. Those years that God has given us should be lived for a purpose that he has given us, even as we've lived well. There's tremendous danger, though. The lore is that we buy into the cultural myth of what our last few years should be, and so we enter into that everyday cycle being Saturday, and so For a little help in understanding the danger of ease and the danger of waiting for whatever's next instead of actually following Christ actively, I turned to one of our top philosophers in human history, the doctor himself, Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss wrote a wonderful little book called, Oh, the Places You'll Go, a book about the movements of life. And he pauses to reflect in that book on the most dangerous thing or place that can happen to a person. He calls it the waiting place. And here are his words of wisdom. For people just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or the waiting around for a yes or no or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting waiting for the fish to bite, or waiting for the wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for Friday night, or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. The reality of retirement culture, as we've been taught in America, is that you reach a point where we wait, we do what we want, no real agenda, we go. Friends, as Christian men and women, we must and have to, we have an obligation as disciples to begin to think differently. Our later years may mean the end of a career. It might mean that you no longer need to clock in and clock out, praise the Lord. It, might, it doesn't mean that you now enter the, the waiting place, though. So Christian brother or sister, let us no longer think that 
we have a Western retirement mindset, okay? Let's not think that we reach a point and then we kind of coast out, but let's think about finishing well. And so in order for us to help one another think about finishing well, I invite you to turn your scriptures to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here Paul, once again, is addressing a young pastor on the end of Paul's own life. And basically Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, I'm going to be leaving you soon. Here is how I know that I'm going to be leaving. Here are the marks of my life and what it means to finish well for Christ. So let's look at that. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through, we'll go through 10. Paul says to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with his present world, has deserted me and gone on to Thessalonica. I want you to notice a few things here. But before we get into how Paul defines finishing well, I want you to notice one little side note that he says at the end of this section to Timothy regarding Demas. Paul implores Timothy to come to him, to come visit him soon, because who left him was this man, Demas. And Demas left him and is not finishing well because he's in love with the present world. And so really, as we enter into phases of life, we have the reality that you can indeed live well or not live well. You can indeed finish well or you cannot finish well. And I, friends, I want to tell you that if you are defining both your life and the finish of your life in accordance to worldly standards, you will not either live well nor finish well for Christ. And that's a challenge for us all. And so in, order, in light of that challenge, let's look at how Paul defines finishing well. Number one, he says this, that he fought the good fight to the end in verse 7 of chapter 4. What was Paul fighting for in his life? Well, he was fighting against false teaching that was prevalent of that time. He was fighting against the sinful lore in his own heart. And ultimately, he was fighting for the glory of God in these area churches and in the lives of other believers. And this contrast, this flies directly in the face of retirement mindset. The retirement culture says that in the end of your life, it's someone else's fight now. It's my time to do what I want to do. I've put my time in the battle. Now I can rest. And Paul would look at us today and he would say, no, no, no. Your fight isn't over. The gospel must be taught. Error must be exposed. Personal holiness must constantly be pursued. And so for those of us who are in that phase of retirement or that next chapter of life, understand that our days are to be spent in study and teaching and helping the next generation know and understand the beauty of Jesus Christ. Finish well. Secondly, Paul expounds a bit more on what it means to finish well when he says that he has finished the race. He ran to the end. Now the comparison of life in gospel work to that of a race is really helpful because there's an understanding in running that the longer you run, (laughs) the harder it gets. The longer the race, the more difficult it is and there's different phases that occur to you as you run. I have a friend of mine who has run 
I don't even know how many marathons. And one time, a few years ago, he and I were talking about the race that he had just run and how hard this particular race was. And he said, yeah, at mile 22, I was running and I saw this guy's front yard and how nice it looked. And I thought, I'm going to go lay in his front yard. There's a reality that as we run the race, we get tired, it's hard, it's difficult, and there are distractions that come, come about that can cause us to stop running. And Paul says, no, as a Christian, the way in which you finish well is you run through the finish line. You run to the very end. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you use that breath to tell others of the glorious gospel that has redeemed us. And the second that that breath is gone is the only time that you stop running for the gospel. And so retirement mindset tells us, well, these are my years to coast. I can finally have some of me time. Finishing well says this isn't your time at all. This is God's time that he has given you. Run it out to the very end. There are conversations and conversions to be had for his name's sake and for his glory. I think of my son who runs cross country and how his coach coaches him at the very end of the race. That's when you, what, kick it in. (laughs) You finish strong. And his face always tells me that I'm foolish to tell him to run there at the end of the race. But coach always tells him, finish so that you have nothing left. Give it all on that last leg. Even though you might feel exhausted, the end is worth it. And friends, I want to tell you that no matter where you find yourself in life, the gospel is worth every effort to finish well. Run to the end of the life that God has given you. So that when you appear before your Savior... You can humbly bow before him, thanking him for his grace in your life and offering a good sacrifice. Finishing well, run to the end. Lastly, Paul says, he finished well because he was faithful to the call all the way to the end. Now, Paul is not congratulating himself in this moment. He's not saying, man, I've done a great job. I'm going to pat myself on the back. What he is celebrating is the faithfulness of Christ in his life. And this is the beautiful reality. As you mature in Christ, you actually become more aware that it isn't you maturing you. It is Christ working in you. And so this is Paul saying, look at what Christ is doing in my life. He has allowed me by his faithfulness to me to be faithful to him. And so retirement mindset in America tells us that my last few years are to be spent enjoying my investments. And Paul would say... No, finishing well are the years where you invest further in God and his faithfulness. It's where you invest in the next generation, where you mentor, you train, you guide, and disciple others. Whatever admonitions Paul might have addressed to aging Christians then and to us now, recommending relaxation and taking things easy would not have been among them. So I want to challenge us today, Christian brothers and sisters. The way in which you live well for Christ, with affection towards the gospel, physically living in obedience, fruitfully laboring to see others grow, is the way in which you finish well. Some of you are familiar with the name George Whitfield. 
George Whitfield was an evangelist in the 18th century in both England and the American colonies, and, and he was one of the evangelists during the Great Awakening. Whitfield was a man who was known for his pace of ministry. He also was known for having great hair. I'm sorry. And it was said of him that he spoke. Now get this. Don't let this just go over you. He spoke an average of 60 hours a week for the gospel. Spoke it. It wasn't as if that was prep time for a two-hour sermon or whatever. No, this was he spoke 60 hours a week on top of the travel that it took to get from point A to point B at this point in time. The scope of his preaching was unreal as well. He often spoke to crowds of 8,000 to 20,000 people without any sort of mic. (laughs) And he did this every day, all day. He spoke in Boston for a month once, and because there was no church big enough to fit the crowds, he went outside with the crowds. And it's estimated that the average attendance there that whole month to hear him, the average daily attendance was 8,000 people to hear him every single day for a month. And why was that amazing? Because the population of Boston at that time was 8,000 people. 60 hours a week of preaching. God-producing fruit. It's estimated that 80% of the population of the colonies heard Whitfield preach at some point. 80%. This is long before Moody Radio. The pace of ministry was hard on Whitfield, though. Our bodies are broken and sinful and tired, and so oftentimes as we work hard, we get tired. And the reality for Whitfield was, though, as he was tired, he said, I would rather wear out than rust out. J.C. Ryle said this of Whitfield. He was eminently a man of one thing, and that was always being about his master's business. If you were to follow him around from Sunday mornings to Saturday nights, from 1st of January to the 31st of December, he was incessantly preaching Christ and going about the world and treating men to repent and come to Christ and be saved. Non-stop. In the months of August and September of 1770, Whitfield was consistently ill, could not seem to get better. But that didn't stop him from preaching. He kept preaching all the more. And he was about to preach one day, and he went up, and someone grabbed his elbow and said, Sir, you're better fit for bed than preaching. And he shook him off, and he went up and preached. And then he got into a carriage and traveled 30 miles to the next location to preach there. After he got done preaching, he desired to go to bed before he had to preach the next day. And so he went inside his house to go to bed. And as he was going up the stairs, there was a pounding on the door as the crowds had come again, wanting another sermon. And so he turned and from the top of the stairs, he held a candle and he preached from the top of the stairs. And he preached until the candle burned out. And the candle burned out as it came into his fingers and went out. And when it was done, he was done. He went to bed. And never woke up this side of heaven. I don't know, but that's a pretty rad way to go out. Finishing well. With the gospel on your tongue at the very last second. Entering into eternity. Experiencing the gospel as you just spoke it. 
And my prayer for us, friends, is that we will realize that Christ is worth any sacrifice we make this side of heaven to honor him. He is worth the time. He is worth the effort. He is worth the potential embarrassment. He is worth it. And as you live for him and see the fruit of his work, your own heart is enlivened as you are reminded by the faithful, effective work of the gospel. And so may our days never count for us. My prayer for us all here at Old North is that when our days on this earth are done, it is not your name that is known, but it is Christ's. And so may that be our prayer, may that be our activity, may that be the mindset that we approach living and finishing well. And in closing, one final verse for us today, and that is Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul says, I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time under the teaching of your word. May our hearts be corrected by it, and may our lives be lived in adjustment to it. In your name we pray, amen.